Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. My name's Will Duffin, and today I'm welcoming Nadja Alterson, who's uh, we're speaking to from Denmark. Hello, Nadja. Hello. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, so, Nadja, um, I gather so you're a you're training in geriatrics, but you're also doing a PhD in cardiac arrhythmias at, at the same time. Uh, and you've had a really interesting career. You've you've spent uh, around three years working out in Greenland. You've done lots of cross country skiing. You've you've crossed the the ice cap of Greenland, and, and, and very interestingly, you've also spent about thirteen months in total at the Concordia base on the Antarctic plateaus. It'd be great to talk about that. And you're, you're also now working in the pandemic department, uh, tackling COVID cases. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so lots going on. Yes. <laughs> and um, so in, let's, um, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about your, your career to, to date. Um, so have you spent most of your time in, in Denmark or, or, or in Greenland? Which of those countries uh, have you, uh, do you prefer? I spent most of my time working in Denmark. Um, yeah, and yeah. I've worked in a lot of different departments and I've liked both. And yeah. I was working in Greenland from 2013 till 2016. And um, I think... Working in both places has great advantages, and right now I'm very happy about working in Denmark. But I think they'll, I'll, I'll always keep coming back to Greenland to work. What is it about Greenland that keeps uh, drawing you back? Well, one thing is um, it's a really beautiful place. The nature is really spectacular, and the people in Greenland are wonderful. Um, I think because of the ex extreme nature, the extreme place, people have um, a bit of a different attitude towards life in general. Um, people very much live in the moment, which I really like. And yeah. I think when you, also when you work there as a doctor, um, you, you know, people don't just go to the doctor whenever they have a bit of a cough or whatever. Um, um, uh, and you see, because there's so few doctors and so few uh, different specialities, you see a lot of different things. You see a few cases of everything, but you really see everything. So you get to do a lot, try a lot, and really learn a lot. And you also learn to work independently. And I think most importantly, you also learn that you can only do so much in certain situations because when you work in Denmark and a lot of other European countries you get used to you always have um, you know you always have a cardiac surgeon or an intensive care unit and I think you really learn a lot from working in a place where you don't have access to those kind of things you you, you learn dealing with um, that you can only do as much as you can do yeah. if you know what I mean because because you've worked in some really remote parts of Greenland yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, sometimes you're in a situation where, you know, if something similar happened in Denmark, for instance, you would just transfer the patient to a different department or a different hospital and they would get treated immediately. Mm -hmm. But in Greenland, sometimes you have to wait a day or a week or 
even longer depending on the weather or the situation in general so you you really you learn to really do as much as you can and to yeah. overstep some boundaries as well of what you, you think you can do and what kind of uh, clinical settings were those? Was that like a GP, rural GP surgery? Or were you also a, a bit of an uh, emergency doctor as well? What, what kind of roles did, did you have? Well, if you work in one of the bigger towns, like uh, the capital, um, they have like a GP setting and a, an emergency room, and then they have a hospital as well. So that's yeah. a bit more like working in Denmark. But when you go to any other place, you would usually only have a GP or maybe even just a nurse station. So it would depend on the location, but usually you would be maybe one, two, three doctors and it would mainly be GP, but also a bit of internal medicine and surgery as well. Okay. So there's a small inpatient ward as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you, um, I understand you've, ended up microscoping the diaphragm of a freshly shot polar bear yes that was an unexpected bonus um i think it was in my first year in greenland i was okay. uh, i was stationed in one of the smaller towns so i was the only doctor and um all of a sudden the nurses started running around that a polar bear had been shot and it it was on the west coast usually the polar bears are on the east coast so it's really rare that the polar bears go there and even more rare that they get shot. And polar bears are a really big delicacy. They really like eating them. Apparently it's very tasty. I haven't tasted it, unfortunately. But they have a, a trichinosis, or they may have. So, because there's no um, veter, veter, no vet. <laughs> yes. it's, a, it's a doctor's job to do the microscoping for the trichinosis. Oh, right. So, yeah. so I, I, I just came there to look because they were, you know, um, uh, um, you know, cut, cutting up the animals, taking out the organs and all of this. Yeah. And then the, the guy just handed me this piece of meat in a bag of potato chips. And he was like, here you go. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? So I had to Google what the, what the trichinosis would look like in a micro microscope. Wow, I have to admit, trichinosis in, po in polar bears is something I know nothing about. What, what is it? Um, it's kind of like a parasite um, if you and it's really hard to kill so if you eat polar bear you have to usually cook the, the meat for about eight hours to be sure that it's dead and but if you get infected it grows really slow so once it, it goes to the muscle that goes to the liver it can also go to the brain and once it's really settled you can get rid of it and you you can get really sick from it Wow. So before anyone eats polar bear meat, it needs to be checked for trichinosis. Yes. Otherwise cooked for like eight, 10 hours or something. Oh, right. Yeah. What, what is that? Have you eaten polar bear? Does it, what does it taste like? I haven't. No. Yeah. I, I wonder. Actually, I, I took such a long time microscoping that they thought I had cooked <laughs> the meat and eaten it. You missed out. I bet it, I bet it tastes like chicken. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, great. Yeah. So, and you, you, you did a lot of skiing when you were out in Greenland. Um, tell me about this amazing trip where you crossed the, the, the entire ice cap as part of a team of six. That sounds uh, like it was your first real taste of real isolation. Yes, it was. And it was, um, I think, I think a lot of people get some kind of fascination with the, with the ice cap when you go to Greenland, you know, you, you, the, the, 
at the main airport, you can go there, you can walk there, you can take a bus to the ice cap and you can stand there and just look over the ice and it just stretches forever. So, um, so it just became really attractive. But um, we were a group of six and we spent 28 days crossing the ice cap on skis and it was really, really hard. It was definitely the hardest thing ever. Um, but it was, it was basically just skiing and pulling the sledges, sleeping in tents and melting a lot of water. You spend so much time melting water, but you're also completely isolated apart from being in this group. Um, you have, you have um, the satellite phone where you can also do some internet connection, but uh, you don't have any mobile phones. You don't get any news or anything. The only news we got when we were on the ice was that a prince had died. That was the only thing. Um, was that a nice thing, having a bit of a break from the news, or did, did you miss it? I didn't miss it at all. Um, it was actually quite nice. And I think it was also the first time I learned that you can actually be away for a month and not get any news. And once you get back, nothing has changed at all. I mean, <laughs> you really don't miss out not having your phone for 30 days. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it makes you wonder with this pandemic having just hit, if anyone is currently out there crossing the ice cap of Greenland or some other remote place, if they're going to return civilization anytime soon, I think things will have changed a bit for them. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it must be a big shock. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you had all those amazing experiences in Greenland and then you applied for the the European Space Agency has a, a space analogue, which is the Concordia station down in, uh, in Antarctica. And you, you spent a whole 13 months uh, on that station in a, within a small team. Yes. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, um, well, we were 13 people who spent the winter there. Um, so that was nine months. Um, from February till November. Um, and then there's the summer period in Antarctica where it gets really busy. Um, well, with busy, there's a hundred people. So it's not that many, but you know, compared to the 13, it, it really feels like a lot. Yeah. Um, so the base is actually um, a French Italian research station, um, mainly glaciology and astronomy. Yeah. But um, the, the European Space Agency has sponsored um, a water treatment unit and that kind of gave them access to do biomedical research there because the base is um, completely isolated during the winter. There's 600 kilometers to the closest neighbor. And besides that, it's also in 3,600 meters of altitude. So there's also some hypoxia there and that makes it a really good space analog. Mm. Wow. And did you, when you first arrived, did you feel the altitude straight away? I did a little bit, you know, walking on stairs, um, you get some shortness of breath and also a little bit of edema actually mm. when I was there in the beginning. But then, yeah. you know, you get so many input and there's so many changes, there's so much, so many things going on that you don't really know which is which. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so Nadja, you were doing some research um, on isolation in one of the most isolated locations on earth that's antarctica can you tell me a bit more about the the project you were working on but they do a number of different projects and the the people in charge of the the projects apply to esa so what i my role was basically just carrying out the research it was not my projects as such 
Um, but all of the projects um, focuses on how people are affected about uh, by isolation and altitude. And they do it in a number of different ways. So, of course, there's a lot of interest in the psychology, psychological reactions, but there's also a lot of focus on sleep, um, how the muscles and bones change uh, during the year, um, stress hormones, um, the immune system, um, how um, the body adapts to hypoxia. Um, when you're in hypoxia, hypoxia for a long time because we get to spend 13 months there instead of you know just walking up and down a mountain um, just um, so and then there was one of the projects that um, looked at how people's navigating skills um, develop over the course of the winter so we used the Soyuz simulator uh, and at different um, intervals between uh, trainings to see how well people performed during the winter I see. It performed in what way? Um, per, uh, by docking the Soyuz to the ISS. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was like it's a really complex. technical uh, pr process with the simulator. Yes. And, and did the performance improve or, or decline? What, what, what did you observe? Well, actually, it's the only public, well, the only project that has done some publications now. And what they saw, they compared the people in Concordia to people at uh, the Halley station, which is on the on sea level on the coast of Antarctica. Yeah. So it's yeah. also isolated, but it's, um, they don't have via hypoxia. And then they had a control group in, in Stuttgart in Germany. And what they saw was that people generally performed a little bit worse in Concordia. Right. So, so what they think is that hypoxia also plays um, quite a big factor in how pe well people perform. Oh, interesting. I mean, we've known for a long time that, that uh, in high altitude mountaineering that that can really impair people's judgment, especially when they're not yet fully acclimatized. Um, you, I, I, I just wonder, though, if you're at 3000 meters or thereabouts for around 13 months, surely after a few months, you would have thought that people would be fully acclimatized and therefore would not have the same degree of cognitive impairment that someone ascending rapidly to altitude in, in a mountaineering setting would would have but that's not what you found no it seems like there's some impairment at least but mm. it's you know it's difficult to say if it's because the sleep gets impaired uh, yeah. because of the hypoxia so when people have some kind of sleep deprivation the the memory and the the coordination maybe declines yeah. a little yeah. bit or that's if it's a direct impact of the hypoxia we don't know don't know. Did you find that your test uh, group uh, at altitude on Concordia slept less well than your control group in Stuttgart? Well, actually, that data hasn't been analyzed yet. Okay. But what we definitely did see, even just, you know, talking in the group was that a lot of people had sleep disturbances. Uh, some of people had it for the entire 13 months and some people had it for just shorter periods of time. Yeah. So, you know, it was, I think it was the one thing that we talked about the most in Concordia was sleeping. Yeah. And from my understanding, that's been well described in the literature, what's called periodic breathing at altitude, that kind of gasping um, as, as you uh, uh, at night, just to kind of do these kind of catch up breaths because you're always slightly not quite oxygenating yourself enough. Yeah, exactly. And that probably yeah. plays an impact. And there was actually because, you know, as you know, usually people, they wake up, but they don't really wake up. As, yeah. As, so they don't remember the day after. But some people actually still recognize that they were having these trouble even at the end of the stay that they would wake up feeling uh, a shortness of breath even at the end 
of the isolation. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so great. So you were testing hypoxia and the impact that that has on, on technical cognitive tasks like docking a, a Sawyer's capsule <laughs> on a simulator. Were there any other uh, research aims of, of your deployment? So that was one project and they also did testing of like memories and um, um, coordination um, and um, motoric skills. So they only, uh, they've only, uh, sorry, (laughs) they only done a paper on the Soyuz part now, like the only the docking part. So the rest will follow. And then there was a project that looked on the long-term effects of hypoxia. So that's more like a biochemical, so the nitrogen oxide and different hormones. Yeah. And then one project uh, is looking into the microbiome in the gut and how that is affected because we don't have any bacteria or vira in Concordia because it's too cold. Wow. So it's basically a sterile environment. Basically, yes, and we yeah. all eat the same food. So, but they, so they think it would be really interesting to see how that affects the microbiome and also yeah. how that affects the immune system. Wow! Because even even in space, there there are some immune uh, disturbances of some kind. Like people get uh, like outbreaks of herpes, uh, yeah, yeah. the labial herpes, and we actually noticed the same thing in Concordia. But it it could also be stress related. Um, and then there was a project that looked specifically on the, how the body composition changes and the bone density um, and like physical activity. Mm. Because during the winter it gets so cold that people don't go out so much. So maybe there will be some changes there. Um, and then... We, we- yeah, sorry. I was going to say, were you able to get any exercise or activity when you, during the, the bleak midwinter in, in the Antarctic? Was it, was it very difficult? Did you have facilities there to, to stay active? That's a very small gym. Okay. <laughs> there's a treadmill and a bike, and that's pretty much it. But, the, but yeah. it's there, and there's a lot of stairs. So. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> and what was, uh, what was it like for you uh, being uh, cooped up in a, a, a little kind of, a, a tiny uh, facility for that period of time. Um, wh- wh- how did that feel? Most of the time it was fine. Um, time passed surprisingly fast. Um, and well, you really have to, I mean, what, what I noticed, I think it was a different experience for everybody, but what I really noticed is that you get, so little input from the outside also because you, you don't have a tv the internet connection is really really poor mm. so you know you, you can't watch netflix or whatever so i mean you have to you have to entertain yourself yeah. inside the group and you have to really structure your day and you have yeah. to keep yourself busy because yeah. when you don't have any input you i think what could happen is that you kind of start thinking too much And that's also when some of the conflicts happen because you start thinking a bit too much what people are saying and doing and stuff like that. So I think you, you kind of have to, you really have kind of have to be aware of, of your own um, mood and uh, actions and the group dynamics. Um, But I think in general, it was a, it was, it was a really positive experience and it's a very unique place. So just being in the place was, was, you know, really amazing. But I, 
I also noticed that you kind of have to remind yourself, like what you, which is what you also have to do in daily life. You have to remind yourself that you know the the moon is really pretty today or whatever, okay. because other otherwise it just gets daily becomes daily life. Yes, I see. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that you, you have to keep yourself busy. You, you, the more you, uh, the, the more you kind of allow yourself to lay fallow, the, the more you, you end up kind of worrying and ruminating and, um, and, and generating some kind of negative energy. What kind of things when you weren't engaged in the research, what kind of things did you and the, your teammates do together to, to pass the hours? Uh, that was a gym, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then books. There, there was a lot of books. Um, there were, you know, I think, because pretty much half the team is French and the other half is Italian. And then yeah. there's the, the Isa doctor, which is for some reason almost never Italian or French. Yeah. So there was some language learning going on, obviously. Um, and then we tried to have social activities like arranging parties and stuff. Uh, kind of regularly at least once per month right, yeah. and watching movies and kind of just you know doing normal stuff but I think we also had to be aware that we had to do it because otherwise it would just kind of you know um, so it took so a bit of self-discipline it took a bit of motivation to really make that happen yeah 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 yeah, yeah I bet I bet and um what were the what was what were the big highlights for you? You you mentioned you you, you talked there there were some big rewards. What what were those while you were out there? I think just being in the position and I think the job was really really great. I really loved the job, and but otherwise, I think it would be the the only opportunity for me to go to Antarctica. So even that was special. But during the winter, it would definitely be the night sky just sitting outside on the ice and just looking up because there's no light pollution. Yeah. So you just have a full view of the night sky and the Milky Way and it's really, you know, indescribable. Wow. uh, Did you have a telescope out there? There was, but they weren't working. Okay. (laughs) And no, not, not many people around who can fix it either. I imagine. (laughs) The astronomer really tried, but it didn't work. (laughs) Um, But just, just sitting there and you just have, you just you're just sitting on ice and then you just have the sky you know all all around and above you it's just uh it's really really special yeah i bet that's really magical yeah um okay um so it so many of the junior medics listening to this will be uh thinking what an amazing gig that is to go and work out in antarctica have you got any advice for them on how on earth you could get involved with a, a project like this? Well, this position is, position is up every year. Yeah. Um, so that's an option. And for the Italians, they can apply to become, they, we were two doctors. Um, yep. There was a hospital doctor as well, and that's always an Italian. And so that option is there for the Italians. I think luckily the doctor who was there with me was a bit bored. Uh, because there was nothing to do with that's a good thing obviously yeah um but otherwise it's a lot of different bases where you can go and work um but i think you know just kind of look into the opportunities and just give it a shot you know yeah you know, can happen is a no so pr- presumably a, a prerequisite for the concordia base is you have to speak either french or italian i i, I well, imagine actually i didn't I spoke, right. a li- I spoke a little bit of Italian. Um, yeah. Now my French is better than my Italian. Okay. But, 
but I didn't, which was, yeah. it was kind of a weird interview as well, because when I went to the interview, it was in Paris hmm. and you have to do a psychological screening and some of it is written, which, which was fine. But the, the verbal part was uh, kind of weird because the psychologist didn't speak English. I didn't speak French. So there was right. a guy translating. So yeah, <laughs> gosh, you had some fairly rigorous screening then before you were allowed out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, there are lots of other Concord is not alone. You mentioned the other. What what are the other bases in Antarctica that 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 require medics? That's a lot of bases. Um, yeah. really a lot, and I think probably all of them require medics. Um, on the ice, like inside the plateau, there's only a few bases, and that's the Russian one, which I guess would probably be more or less impossible to go to. But yes. then there's the American one at the South Pole. Yeah. Um, that's the Japanese one. And I think there's one more which I can remember. But I think having like a general, like an experience of general medicine would be, be really good. And also some pre-hospital experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that my experience from Greenland was one of the things that, that helped me get the position. Sure, sure. And did you have any medical emergencies while you're out there? Or to, was fortunately did everything go... Uh, was it fairly uh, fairly uh, quiet on the medical front? It, it was quiet, luckily. Well, not yeah, luckily, yeah. but thankfully, because it gets so cold. It gets down to, mm. with the wind chill, it gets down to a 100 uh, minus uh, degrees in the winter. So people get hypothermia really, really fast if something, something happens. Um, during the winter, everybody carries a radio outside and then has GPS, and everybody has to check in regularly, like every 15 or 30 minutes. Yeah, and at one point we kind of uh, lost contact to one of the glaciologists. Um, so we st started. I was in charge of the rescue team, so we started calling in the rescue team to go look for him because we had the GPS. But he was part of the rescue team, so he called in and said, "Well, you know, I'm so I'm kind of busy right now, so I can't come." I was like, "Okay, he's fine." So that was the closest thing to an emergency we had. Yeah, I see. And what what kind of emergencies? are you prepared for in, in previous uh, um, from previous experience? What kind of things had they prepared you to, to be able to handle? Well, actually most of the training is kind of just evacuating people back inside the base, because that's the main thing is getting people inside before they develop hypothermia. But the hospital has um, dental equipment. It has some surgery equipment. There's even a, a respirator in the hospital. So we can actually do quite a lot of things. And it's um, in the surgery lab, there's a video. So we can do telemedicine with one of the big hospitals in Rome. So right, we're also right. able to get a bit, a bit of backup. But the problem is that if something happens during the winter, we can't get the patient out. Mm -hmm. So even if we can um, uh, put the patient on assisted breathing, if it's needed, we can't get the patient to an intensive care unit or whatever. So you had the you have the ability out ability out there to intubate and paralyze and ventilate a patient. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, quite impressive. But that, you know, you, yeah. you could get stuck there for <laughs> quite a while. Has uh, has that ever happened? No, no, not to my knowledge. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's some amazing stories, aren't there? I mean, uh, the, the famous one is uh, uh, the Russian um, doctor, uh, Leonid Rogozov, who performed an auto appendicectomy 
yeah. out in Antarctica. That's the, the famous story using a system of mirrors and infiltrating with local anesthetic as he went. And he f- kept fainting throughout the procedure and his assistants had to keep slapping around the face and waking him up again so he could complete. <laughs> and he did it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's amazing. Uh, this it's was insane. back in Soviet era Russia. This is a long time ago. Um, but, I, I, you know, are you aware of any other kind of outlandish uh, medical uh, things that have, that have happened out, out in the Antarctic uh, like that in recent times? No, not really. But I think that's why we're two doctors. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Like that <laughs> no, I think that's the story of from the South Pole with a doctor who developed breast cancer where they kind of airdropped the medication into her. And that's, that's kind of it. But the appendicitis story is kind of uh, extreme. It's quite extreme. It's quite exceptional, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm not sure what's worth doing it on yourself or having your colleague who's not in any way surgically trained, uh, having a go on you. Um, <laughs> take your pick. Yeah, exactly. I was a bit more worried for my colleague if I had to be the, his doctor. He was, he was, he was quite experienced. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and between you, did you have your bases covered? Were you, um, were you both doctors or, or was your colleague uh, kind of a different, um, different specialty or different branch of, of healthcare? Or how did they pair the, the two medics together on, on Concordia? Actually, I don't think they put a lot of thought into it, actually. Uh, because we they don't select us together. Um, but I think we were quite a good team because he came from a leading position in an um, um, emergency ward. Yeah. So he was, and he's a trauma surgeon. So yeah. that part he was quite used to. And I'm more like a general medicine kind of thing and, you know, sure. geriatrics and internal medicine. Yeah. So I think we complemented quite well and we worked really well together as well. Great. I mean, that, that must make such a difference. Uh, over the course of 13 months to have a good working relationship absolutely and it was actually yeah. really nice also your question about passing time because he had time to you know give me lessons and ultrasounds and stuff like that so that was really great. nice so you talk, talk stuff to each other that's great um so let's move on to your current role which is in the pandemic unit so you're in uh, in denmark you're you've got covid patients coming in T- tell me what what uh, what that involves that entails uh, I think it's it's different in the different regions of Denmark how they chose to handle the situation and the region I live in is the least affected at least so far and thankfully yeah. um, and we have seven different departments and the ones I'm working in is the kind of like the pre-hospital department where we do the swapping the rope swaps and like a triage so we kind of do the screening of the patient and decide if anybody has to go like further in and get blood samples and uh, x-rays and stuff like that done and needs to be admitted to the hospital. And then I also work in the intermediary department. So people who need to be hospitalized, but are not you know, sick enough to be in the inter- intensive care unit. And then I also work in the department where people go like post intensive care. So. Yeah the the step where they're once again stable and but not well enough to go home i see i see and how are you finding this uh this pandemic so far i i think it's a really special work situation to be in because not only do we not really know like the development of the disease like we 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 
don't know how the patient is going to react like when they're in the hospital like we know that they are probably going to crash if they crash around day seven or day 10 and then start getting better but we still have so few cases that we're kind of learning as we go along and i think we, we had quite a few situations where we think okay now the patient is ready to go home and then the next day it just looks completely different mm. so we're just really being very careful with everybody so that's one thing it's one thing is that we you know um there's so much uncertainty about the disease yeah and but the other thing is also there's so much uncertainty uncertainty about the the work situation because right now they are just taking people from everywhere a lot of us are volunteering and we don't know like what the work schedule is going to be next week because we don't know how many patients are going to be there. Yeah. So there's so much uncertainty and so, so much frustration because of yeah. that as well. And that's just something that we have to deal with as yeah, well. Yeah, that's really, that really mirrors how things are for us in the UK and, and certainly me as, as a GP. Um, I mean, I've never done so much reading before a surgery before I, it's, so much new data coming out from Wuhan in China and now Italy. They're the, um, a more advanced stage than, than both our respective countries. And it's so hard to know how you can extrapolate that data into different health system, uh, different population and different health policies in place. It's wow. And it's just constantly changing our understanding of, of this disease and how it affects people. And it, it's just, uh, it's really, really challenging, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. I'm, I'm certainly, I'm finding, you know, my GP colleagues and I, our role is constantly changing and uh, we just don't really know from week to the next, uh, what kind of, how we're going to be working. We've, 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 we've ditched all our routine work. We're doing mostly telephone uh, triage system now and we're dividing COVID and non-COVID, but then next week there'll be so much COVID around that we'll just, everyone will just be just presumed COVID. It, it's just a complete maelstrom, if I'm honest. <laughs> but it's, it's great to know that we're not alone, that you're feeling that in Denmark as, as well. Well, absolutely. And like nobody, nobody knows if it's going to be like one more month or three months or a year. And, you know, should we go yeah. for herd immunity or shouldn't we? And, you know, the sensitivity of the test and the number of people you're testing and you're, you know it's just it's kind of chaotic really in a way it it really is and is there what's the mood in denmark amongst the general public is uh are people quite fearful of covid is there a a huge sense of apprehension or is there a uh is there a real sense of camaraderie and and we're all in this together Uh, how how would you describe how how the, the kind of country is feeling as a whole if you could I think there's a bit of everything, really. Um, yeah. I think there's a really, really great sense of camaraderie, especially in the beginning. I think it's starting to fade out a little bit. Also because, you know, the, you obviously know the two curves, you know, you, yeah. you have the, the really steep one and then you have the, the more flat one, which is the one everybody is going for. Yes. Of course. Uh, yeah. And I think in the beginning, everybody was fearing the really steep one. So like the population really stood together and the camaraderie was really there. And then it, it didn't happen. And I think that kind of left people, you know, also a little bit, you know, this uncertainty. Yeah. So it's it's kind of slipping apart a little bit. And I think um, there's a little bit of frustration starting to grow, like a frustration about the isolation and plans for the summer not happening anyways. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but also definitely a lot of fear 
especially among the people who are in the risk groups, like the, yeah. the elderly and the, the chronically ill. So I, I think there's a little bit of everything. And of course, also, which you probably also notice as a GP, like um, the people who have anxiety, like I think it's a really, really difficult period for them. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, I, yeah, I think but there, we already had an an epidemic of loneliness and mental health um, problems before this pandemic, and this has really, yeah, this will 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 huge. It's, it's a huge surge in levels of anxiety moving forward. And the, the thing that that's worrying me more than anything at the moment is the um the management of non-covid disease how that's impacted on the by, by this pandemic um all routine hospital appointments have been sh- postponed there's very very little routine chronic disease management i do feel like we're storing up this this time bomb we're going to see at the tail end of this um a lot of um patients unraveling lots of diseases presenting at a late stage that were not managed um because of everything being parked during the pandemic and and think that's when certainly in primary care that's where it's really going to hit us and we see the same in the hospitals we don't yeah. there's not that many emergency admission with like people with um acute coronary disease or yeah. people who are who have to be um screened for cancer and mm-hmm. we're getting really worried in the hospital about where the patients are because absolutely they should yeah. be there yeah yeah absolutely and presumably uh the health policy in in denmark is similar to uk is it uh, uh, uh you currently in lockdown yeah yeah and, and vulnerable groups are being shielded yeah um yeah we are on a lockdown. There's nobody being well. It's they're supposed to be shelter, but there's no particular rules for anyone. And yeah. according to plan, we're going to start opening up next week around the fifteenth. So okay. they're going to, to start letting uh, the small children go back to like their care and also yes, back to yes. school. So up to fifth grade. Yes, that's interesting. So, I mean, it was it was a very controversial move in the in the UK closing all the schools. Uh, the impact that has on there's very weak evidence to show that really impacts the spread of coronavirus. But uh, but suppose the caveat to that is we don't fully understand the role that children play. We know they get mild disease, but we don't know how much viral shedding uh, and how much um, truly the the uh, uh, children, young people are are responsible for the spread of the pandemic so i suppose it's it seems like a prudent move but um it's very interesting to hear that that is the first easing in lockdown measures that your country is considering and i wonder whether the uk will will also follow in the same vein yeah we'll see well we can see in about three or four weeks how it's going to yes absolutely and um so yeah we're all experiencing a, a new kind of isolation with lockdown. Many of us are, are, are many people are self-isolating, so they're not able to go out at all for, for 14 days. So they live with someone who's got symptoms. Um, from your experience so far of the isolation of, of lockdown, how does that relate to the isolation you experienced in Antarctica? Which, which of those did you, were they, are they different challenges? Which, which of those do you feel was, was uh, easier, harder, uh, and why? I think they're very different, actually. And I think that this one is probably the more difficult. 
um, in Concordia you had the like the physical isolation like if you if you wanted to leave you would have to go out in the cold and then you would die and you know you knew that if you started walking that would be the consequence mm -hmm. um, so it was really hands-on like the consequence was, was really hands-on and we also knew that the isolation would start in February and it would end in November and that's it and we also choose to go um, we had some kind of motivation and with the COVID-19 um, it was just kind of you know put on people and nobody knows when it's really going to end if it's going to end and then start all over and um, I think the consequence is a bit more vague um, because if you break the isolation you know maybe you get infected maybe you don't get infected maybe you you know pass the disease to someone else maybe you don't it's a lot more uh, it's a lot more vague and then i think also with the covid 19 when you're being isolated you're really missing out on things in, yeah. in concordia you you know you were not going to go to a party you know anyways outside the base right um, yeah. so i i think that makes it a lot more difficult um, and then it, I think especially the, the predictability um, is a big issue, at least for me it is. Yes, um, absolutely. I suppose you, you knew you were going, you were going to get out of there at a set point in time, whereas in, in this instance, we, we just don't know at all, do we? Exactly. Mm, that's really interesting. Do you, do you think that uh, Concordia has prepared you for life in, in lockdown Denmark? Do you feel I, better prepared than most? For sure. Also, we, I think, you know, when things got hard in Concordia, you you knew it was it's going to end. And but you know, that, there you had a date. But even now, you know, you I still know it's it's going to end at some point. It's it's only temporary. Okay. So and I think that that helps me a lot. And also, I know that missing out on things for even a thirteen months is okay. You know. And you can, you can still Skype and you can still use WhatsApp and email and whatever. So, you know, I tried it. It's, it's okay. It, it worked out. And I think, I think it's also a really good um, chance to kind of, uh, kind of sit back and not have as many inputs as usual. And mm. then you just kind of realize, you know, the important things in life. It sounds kind of hippie-ish, mm. but I think uh, you, you kind of get a different perspective on the important things in life and the important yeah. people. Oh, absolutely. Um, and what, if, what are the important things in life for you, Nadja? Licorice. No. Licorice? <laughs> definitely, definitely my friends and family. Um, yeah, I think in Concordia, I really, you know, you, you, you kind of sort of out a lot of noise and I really realized how fortunate I am with, mm. you know, with everything. And yeah. I, I think that's a possibility to do as well under the COVID-19 isolation. But then yeah. I'm also aware that everybody is having different experiences and yeah, some people of course. Are, are finding it a lot more difficult. And, you know, also when you're yeah. working from home, you have small kids, you have to homeschool as well and whatever. It can be super stressful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really interesting what you're saying about inputs. And I feel like modern life um we are constantly chasing our own tail we're taking on way too much especially medics we're the worst for it um and we're always uh, future focused just thinking about what's coming up next and we never really engineer an opportunity to stop and 
just take in where we are. And I think uh, it's really interesting you're um, pointing uh, to this pandemic as, as an opportunity for us to do that, for, as an opportunity for us to really just regroup and think about what's important to us, what, what, what's, uh, what gives us um, joy and satisfaction. And, and you know, for you, it sounds like that's, that's friends and family and um, being able to, to speak to them and, and um, know that they're there. And I, I think that's really, really, really amazing. Yeah, and I think it's in a way it's been a good training for my family as well that I was in Antarctica. You know, they they experienced you know having people at a distance before yeah. as well. So I think maybe it helped them cope a little bit as well during uh, of course. The pandemic. So they were already quite well, presumably in uh, Concordia. You couldn't even do video calls. You, you, it was all just voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So at least this is uh, a little bit easier. Yeah, it is, <laughs> yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. Great. Well, Nadja, it's been uh, really great to chat to you today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. If people want to reach out to you for any questions, uh, how could they do that? Well, they can find me on Facebook. Or, yeah. Yeah. I also have a homepage, so they can just Google me. That's fine. So if they Google your name, you'll pop up on the first hit. Maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> great. Well, it's been great chatting to you. A uh, pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, um, uh, wish you all the best and good luck with, uh, with the COVID, u- COVID unit uh, moving forwards. And I, I hope uh, you have a, an easy run of it. Uh, Thank you and back at you. Great. Okay, bye for now. <laughs>